Our gospel reading this evening comes from the gospel according to John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, and then verses 31b through 35. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church today. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, One who has bathed does not need to wash, except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
I was challenged this week by something that I heard. Like at least a handful of you, I have found solace and empowerment in Brene Brown's writing and speaking. And her latest podcast, Unlocking Us, was timed perfectly to the beginning of this pandemic season. Last week, she spoke with grief specialist David Kessler. They reviewed Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's famous five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. They emphasized that these stages are not necessarily linear and they don't necessarily happen in the same order and they lamented that Elizabeth's prolific career had been reduced to those five stages and all of our strong feelings about them. And then they turned to the focus of the day, Kessler's edition of a sixth stage, meaning There's something that can come after acceptance. Sometime after the death of his 21-year-old son, David had approached the family of Elizabeth and asked for permission to add this sixth stage to the famous five, and they gave it. David knew and wrote and spoke from personal experience in addition to painstaking research. He said that when he was on a book tour and got the call that his youngest had died, he went home, canceled everything, and just tried to survive. He had already spent his career counseling parents whose children had predeceased them, and he said he wanted to write all of them a note and say, I had no idea how bad your pain was. In the midst of this, before he had landed on the decision to approach Elizabeth's family, he had returned to potential chapters that he had scribbled for a potential book on finding meaning after a loved one's death, and he threw them on the floor. But months later, he returned to them, and he reconsidered. What he noticed was that even though it didn't take the pain away, he had found some meaning, and it had given him a cushion. Others noted that as they felt their way through their own journeys of grief, they had also felt their way into a kind of gratitude. Gratitude was one of the central ways that meaning was created. But David remembered how at one of his talks, a woman quipped, can you find gratitude around your son who has died? And David said, I could not have responded this way a moment before then. But yes, he said, I have. And then he went on to clarify what he wasn't saying. The meaning is not in the death. The meaning is in what we do after. The meaning is in us. The statement caught me in my tracks 
jolting my attention, which was divided at that point between the laundry, the baby, and the podcast, and it focused it almost entirely on David's words. It was Palm Sunday just a few days ago. Holy Week had begun, a whole week of remembering Jesus' walk to the cross, a whole week of focusing on Jesus' passion and death. And that line just reverberated. The meaning is not in the death. Perhaps we are especially receptive to that assertion this week. As we watch the numbers of people dying of COVID-19 rise, as cities prepare makeshift hospitals and sanctuaries and makeshift morgues and parking lots, as the virus circles closer and closer to us, claiming people that we know and love, one can hear the resounding chorus of we who are grief-stricken and fearful. Don't you dare make meaning out of this. There is no meaning to be found in this death. And David and other grief experts agree. One does not need to find meaning in a loved one's death or in any death. The meaning is found, the meaning is made, in what happens after a death, sometimes long after. Jesus himself hinted at this meaning-making that would come for the disciples in the days and weeks and even years to come when he said to Simon Peter, later you will understand. Later you will understand why I am washing your feet. Like the death of the Messiah, which also made little sense, Simon Peter was not only unable to understand why Jesus would wash his feet, but he seemed rather embarrassed by it. This is because in the ancient world, while foot washing was a fairly typical ritual, it mattered who did the washing. It was customary upon entering someone's home at the end of a long day to have a foot washing, but typically one would wash his own feet or the slave of the host would have been assigned that task. So when Jesus took up this task, what was normally a rather menial thing and a standard mark of hospitality, like taking someone's coat, became something quite different. And it wasn't lost on Simon Peter, who was quick to protest, Lord, you are not going to wash my feet. As long as you're washing your own feet, or someone considerably beneath you is doing it, it is not such a vulnerable act. But it is when it is someone you look up to, or when it's a peer, Suddenly, it is not simply a chore. It is not just about scrubbing away your own dirt and grime. It is about trusting someone enough to really see you. 
It's about accepting their acceptance of you. And to Simon Peter at the time, that was just humiliating. What Simon Peter couldn't see in that moment of encounter was Jesus for who he really was. Jesus, not the conquering Messiah, the triumphant Messiah, the Messiah who was there to confidently and powerfully stroll into Jerusalem and throw off the imperial chains, but Jesus, the Messiah who knelt before his friends, who reclined with them and shared simple meals of bread and wine with them, who would conquer death by dying. We who stand on the other side of Easter return to these stories having found their meaning. We can name things that those first disciples just couldn't as they found themselves in the midst of their unfolding. What they didn't know then was how they would be set free in a new and profound way to do what Jesus had done to them, what he had called them to do for each other. The motivation for Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet is clearly named in this text. John says that during the supper, Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table and began to wash his disciples' feet. As people who stand on the other side of Easter, we know, as Jesus knew, that radical sense of belonging to God, a belonging that empowers us to get up from our own tables of privilege and comfort and routine and begin God's work. Something that I have been carrying for the last few weeks are the voices of you who are lonely and aching to serve in this season. Your texts and your calls and your emails are living proof of a living, deep, courageous faith that finds its completion in action action that has been difficult, if not impossible, to practice in this season of physical distancing. The last couple of weeks, this church has served as a distribution site for the Mid-South Food Bank, directing traffic and unpacking and packing and loading meals for hundreds of households across Memphis. Our servers expending no shortage of physical labor and time and moral fatigue as each decision carries the weight of safety, of keeping one another safe as we seek to fulfill another most basic human need. For those of you on the front lines, this has provided a great sense of purpose for others, a sense of gratitude for what we as a church are doing. And still for others, gratitude mixed with grief and even moral conflict as you determine that this is not the way for you to serve right now. 
for some of you, the pain of not being able to love people the way that you are accustomed to is real. Friends, we carry a lot with us tonight as the cross stands waiting. Memories can be sustaining, and I find particular comfort in this story. The collective memory of a community, the remembrance of Jesus' last meal with his disciples. Parting words, parting actions are important, and there are any number of things that Jesus could have done or said to them in those final moments. He is, after all, in the company of one who will betray him, one who will deny him, and a host of others who will desert him and scatter when fear grips them. He anticipates these things. He names these things. This less than courageous behavior that will animate this all too human group in the coming hours. It is extraordinary that he does not linger there. Rather, he kneels before them and he washes their feet. I wonder, in the shadow of the empty tomb, did those same disciples recall how Jesus had blessed them that night and commissioned them for service even while they carried all of that human baggage, even while they came face to face with their very real limitations, came face to face with their sin that contributed to the crucifixion of their friend. I wonder how long it took them to discover that they could strive to reflect Jesus, mirroring a like love in this world, precisely because they knew they were imperfect and couldn't do anything apart from God's grace. I'm going to disagree with David Kessler, at least when it comes to the death of Jesus. I believe that there is meaning in his death because his death reveals a God who meets us intimately when we are dying. A God who actually dies with us. His death reveals a God who confronts the violence and the shame of crucifixion and the sin that leads to it by absorbing it and exposing it. I believe that there is meaning in the death of Jesus alone. But there is more meaning in what happens after. The meaning ultimately rests in us, in what we are empowered to do for each other as those who are set free by Christ's death and resurrection, by the revelation that death does not have the final word. It is in that spirit and bound by that spirit that connects us across miles and households that we prepare to meet 
one another at a common table, sharing a meal this evening. Thanks be to God. Amen.